Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The topics and opinions expressed on the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4WN Radio. Joni Aldrich, author and speaker, and your host today for Caregiving SOS on this beautiful Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. I want to thank you, first of all, for tuning in today, wherever you are, and let you know that you can call into the show at 561-422-4365, or you can also chat on w4wn.com, and I'm so pleased to see that the chat rooms are filling up fast uh, to talk about this very important topic today. First of all, I want to mention a statistic that I found when I was looking through uh, doing my research for the saving of Gordon lifelines to win against cancer. Um, Of course, we're not talking necessarily about cancer today, although brain cancer would certainly apply. More people fear getting dementia and Alzheimer's disease than cancer. I think that's pretty telling. Let me just say that other diseases, of course, affect the brain, brain tumors, brain cancer, stroke, Parkinson's, dementia, and even cancer treatments. I'll be having an expert coming on to Cancer SOS um, possibly early in January, but I'm going to try to get him in in December to, to talk about chemo brain a little bit. But today we have a very serious topic to discuss, and that's caregiver safety. And I'm not talking about caregiver safety when you are giving them a shot or obviously they have uh, germs and you need to use uh, uh, latex gloves. I'm talking about caregiver safety when a brain illness patient becomes aggressive. My guest today is Natalie Rubenstein, author and certified geriatric care manager specializing in Alzheimer's disease and other dementia. 
For 16 years, she was a primary caregiver for her mother who was diagnosed with dementia. Natalie is a consultant for numerous assisted living and staff training and education on dementia. She has a private practice in Miami. And I got to add this, Natalie, although on a personal note, her heart is truly in the North Carolina mountains. I, I say that because I'm from North Carolina and Natalie has a home there and provides counseling and support groups for counselors and their families. And I say this because obviously Natalie is very qualified to discuss this topic today. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Thanks for having me, Joni. Until Natalie brought this, um, sent me a news um Real or news topic or news report yesterday that really kind of shocked me to my toes. And it's from New Hampshire. An architect diagnosed with suspected early onset Alzheimer's disease told police he fatally bit, beat his visiting sister in the head with a baseball bat after she overstayed her welcome and started talking about money, a prosecutor said Monday. I have to tell you, I I talk about, I've published three books on caregiving for a brain illness patient, and and I've always talked about safe behaviors, Um, but, and I want everybody to understand that's listening today, this is a fairly small percentage that it gets to this point, but the, the point, the intention of today's show is is not to scare you to death. It's to help you with awareness and understanding and how we can actually recognize some situations before they occur and perhaps stop a, a serious situation. There are approximately 14 million caregivers who care for someone who has Alzheimer's disease or other dementia. And and that doesn't include other brain illnesses. Now, if you polled any of those people, I'm sure that probably most of them are what I call homegrown caregivers, and most of those would not have wanted to take on the role of being a caregiver for an Alzheimer's disease or dementia patient because obviously they would prefer not to have that concern at all. There's an old English proverb, though, that we're going to live by today, and that is hope for the best but prepare for the worst. So, Natalie, um, could you, for the benefit of everyone listening and from your experience, let's talk about the basics. Exactly what is dementia? Well, dementia is, for the most part, a progressive, irreversible brain disorder that affects memory, judgment, capabilities, knowledge. Um, The problem with memory loss is people think it's just about the memory. And we have to think about what is memory? Memory is how we've learned. So everything that has been learned will be unlearned. And and I kind of like to, I was talking with you a little bit today, I like to relate it this way. Our brain is our body's central processing system. Everything goes through the brain. Every single thing that you do, every word that I'm speaking right now, everything comes through that central processor. And when you have something happen to the central processor, just like with your computer, um, when you get a virus on your computer, consider what that does. Now, it can certainly be, mild, but it can certainly go on the opposite direction as well. Do you agree? Well, I I definitely agree. And I think one of the misnomers in this disorder is when we think of somebody with mild dementia, you know, we have to understand it's going to affect concentration. It's going to affect judgment. It's going to affect social skills. And these are the things that we don't always take into consideration. And and certainly in my book on brain caregiving for a brain cancer patient, um, connecting through compassion, I know that one of the 
biggest concern for me, and one of the reasons that I like doing these shows on brain illness and caregiving for a brain illness patient is because my husband Gordon developed metastatic brain cancer at the end of his life and I did not have any training and when you go into a caregiving situation like that it's like being dropped into the middle of the jungle with no jungle training whatsoever and you know, it, it hurt me so bad. And Natalie, I know that we've talked about this, um, that, you know, caregivers aren't trained well, as a general rule. It, well, it's, it's no different also with parenting. Um, you know, we, we are sitting, when we're kids, we, we learn what we've learned from our parents. And then when we have children of our own, for better or for worse, for good or bad, we just do what we've always done or we read some books on it. But actually... Doing things in real-life situations are totally different than what you read about in books. And we're not trained for it. And as much as we'd like to think that we're all excellent caregivers, and many of us are, with better training and better understanding, um, we can all do a much better job. Now, I know we're, we're talking about the topic of care of. Um Alzheimer dementia patients, brain illness patients with aggressive behavior today. And one of the things that you've educated me about is the fact that there are some particular types of people that once they're diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and dementia are predisposed a little bit to have some of these aggressive behaviors. Correct. Um, when you and I were talking, we sort of like talked in a global area, a lot of people don't look at the person with dementia and say, hey, what, kind, what was that person's life when they were younger? Or what type of position did they have? Because what happens is, since we are talking about a progressive disorder of forgetting, we go back in time. And what happens is, if a person had anger issues previously, those anger issues are going to come out now. If somebody was had a traumatic moment in their lives, they're going to be reliving those traumatic moments. And they're not going to take into consideration that this is their wife or this is their partner that they're, that they're doing this to. Um, somebody who, let's just say, and we're not saying all of them, but somebody who was in a position of authority, let's say such as a police officer, who had a gun and had capabilities of knowing how and when to use it. Well, if you think about that from a different perspective, um, a lot of caregivers out there are still living with people who are very viable, but they also have moments where they're not going to be as on as we'd like them to be, which means they're not going to react to situations the way they typically would have. And that's where the violence within this disorder starts. And, and certainly, um, talking about that, uh, one of the things that surprised me that I put in Connecting Through Compassion was the fact that um, brain illness patients lose what I call and what it's called social inhibition. And basically what that means is that, you know, a lot of the learned behavior, the please and the thank yous as we were a child, and a lot of those niceties are gone in a moment. And and so in a, in essence, what that leads to, if you're not prepared for that, is hurt feelings. And I actually went through that with Gordon, and it was very traumatic. And that's really... When we talked, when you talked earlier and you had spoken about how people would rather have cancer than dementia, one of the reasons also for that is caregivers of loved ones who do have dementia, they have, they have much higher anxiety on a daily basis. They have less social contacts with other individuals because they're so much more homebound. Um, they have a greater perceived burden of care. And so they isolate themselves a lot more. So now you're with this person who, as you say, because of the filtering system that's gone, they are going to say things that are hurtful. And as caregivers, we take those things very personally because we basically put our lives on the limb for them or put our lives in hold or changed our lives completely around in order to care for them. 
and we almost feel like we're the ones that aren't get, we're not getting any credit. Definitely not from society and definitely not from the person that we're caring for. And again, that can lead to hurt feelings and can lead to frustration in the caregiver. And I know one of the very important topics that you and I wanted to cover today was the fact that the caregiver can inadvertently, through a lack of training and understanding, can actually lead to some of the aggressive behavior. So let's, let's really focus on that. Okay. Um, you know, when we were talking earlier, a couple of things that we were saying was how miscommunication escalates, and that's where aggressive behavior comes from. Nobody wakes up in the morning ready to start a battle. Um, what happens is it's little things that add up, and because a person has memory loss, some of us have a tendency of feeling, well, they're going to forget about that, or they're going to forget about this incident. But oftentimes, when a person does have memory loss, even though they might forget the incident itself, they will not forget the feeling that that incident um, made them feel. And so it's like anything else, it's like you or I, it's like little things that add up and add up and add up until we eventually explode. And that's what happens oftentimes with aggressive behaviors. It's it's a two-way street. Um, one person is trying to get their needs filled. Another person is feeling as if their needs are not getting met or filled, and that's when the aggressiveness occurs. lost in cyberspace there for a minute. Uh, apologize for that. Natalie, uh, welcome back. <laughs> uh, I just got a Johnny. new internet. Yeah, thanks for having you. Okay, so uh, where were we? Okay, so we were talking about, did you did you talk about the tomato juice? Let's talk about the tomato juice. All right, well, this, this exactly leads into what I was saying. Um, I have a client whose husband is very aphasic. And just because he's having difficulty with getting the words out does not mean that he can no longer comprehend. And unfortunately, as caregivers, that's really where our mindset goes. And so I've been working with her explaining to her that he needs to see what it is she's asking him. And I had an opportunity to be at their home a couple of weeks ago, and she was asking him whether he wanted tomato juice or water. And she started getting really, really frustrated, and so did he, because he wasn't getting his needs met. She definitely wasn't getting her needs met. And finally, I looked at her and said, please, hand me the tomato juice, put the tomato juice on the table, then hand me the bottle of water, I put it on the table. And I looked at her husband, and I said, would you like the tomato juice or the water? And he smiled up at me, and he pointed the tomato juice, and that's what he had wanted. So once again, that's where we're talking about not only miscommunication, but understanding the disorder and what that disorder means. Because he's a frontal temporal individual, which means he has frontal temporal dementia, he is going to lose the capability of speech. But like I said, just because he's lost the capability of speech does not mean that he still does not understand. It does not mean that he still cannot read. It does not mean that he's still not viable in so many other ways. So what she had done was she underestimated the situation. And I think that's one of the things that we can do when 
Um, you know, and, and getting back to my particular situation with Gordon, because that's something I can relate to. You know, you're looking at this person that you've been married to for 20 years, or in some of the listeners' cases, that you've been married to for, let's say, 60 years. And you are used to that person being a certain way. Now, um, they look the same in a lot of cases, and they sound the same. And in a lot of cases, I know with, with Gordon, for example, you would be talking to him for about 30 minutes, and then he would just say something off the wall, and you're going like, whoa, where did that come from? And those were indications there was a problem. But we tend to get into these grooves, these routines, and, and we tend to think that that patient is going to be the very same way. And that's not necessarily the case. You can't go by face value. Well, the whole thing is, is that we, with everybody in our lives, we have a form of communication, and that form of communication is pretty much set. Um, we talk differently to our spouses than we do to our friends, than we do to our bosses, than we do to our children, than we do to our ministers. I mean, it's just we're different people with different, obviously, everybody we're with, we're pretty much a little bit different. Granted, we're still the same, but we, we are different. What happens is because of a brain disorder, it's not like someone's got a broken arm and you can see and you go, oh, poor dear, here, let me get you the shampoo or let me help you into the shower. Because they have a brain disorder and they look so capable, we still keep the same form of communication with them going that we've had for all these years. And right. it's unfortunate, but I tell my caregivers, you know, they can't learn a new mode of communication. It's really going to be up to the, the person who's caring for them. And this is where the behaviors start because, first of all, nobody wants the role reversal. And nobody wants to be the caregiver for their spouse. It's not really something, especially with dementia, it's not something that we really signed up for and we really truly understand. That's number one. But who wants to tell their husband of 30 years, honey, you can't go out because it's dark out, or honey, you can't go out because it's raining out, or honey, you shouldn't be driving? So, you know, we feel bad that we're always saying no, 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 but we're always, but we're doing it for their safety. And, of course, after a while, we get fed up and tired and bored, and our anger and our frustration level starts going to the roof. And so we do silly things like try to block a door for a six-foot-one male who's stronger than Job who wants to go out. And then we wonder why the poor guy starts swinging at us or starts, you know, um, intimidating us or maybe starts grabbing for us. And then, you know, we claim aggressiveness. Um, but what ends up happening is it's, the conversation and the communication that we've been having with that person, and you have to keep in mind, communication is not just verbal. It's also very physical. And what happens is, is that oftentimes we say things in such a way where the other person is going to get upset. I always like to joke around that the French can say anything because no matter what they're saying, it sounds beautiful. <laughs> well, unfortunately, when, when we get upset, you know, our voices have a tendency to rise, and it doesn't matter if you're saying to that person, I love you, honey, it's raining outside, and it's too dangerous, and it's 10 o'clock at night. You know, they don't hear any of that. All they hear is that your voice is filled with anger, and that's what they're reacting to. Exactly. Um, I have a question in the chat room. My dad has Alzheimer's, and I was the primary caregiver for him. His aggressive behavior was directed toward me and others on a more verbal than physical level. Does abuse or aggressive behavior begin with verbal abuse and escalate from there? Also, his aggressive behavior seemed to always happen at night as opposed to during the day. Okay. Everybody is different. Everybody is unique. So there's not one answer, I mean, without knowing the background information. However, it's like anything else. Certain people, individuals feel that they can say things to, they're more comfortable with. They know that person's not going to walk away from them. Um, individuals, especially with dementia, treat their family members very poorly, but they're wonderful with strangers. So my first question would be, are they, you know, is her father better with caregivers that are not family members? Um, because typically they are um, until they get to know the caregiver very well and then you have to switch that caregiver out because 
once they feel comfortable with the person, then that's the next person who's on their abuse radar. That's number one. Um, number two, the abuse escalating at night. Unless I, you know, have a general idea of what that person was like when he was younger. What was his job? Um, was he left alone at night? Was he the individual who was watching over his other family members while maybe mom or dad went to work in the bakery or did something along those lines? Um, maybe his anger is more fear-based than anything else. And, and what exactly is he doing when he's so angry at night? Well, I know, uh, do you believe in sundowning? I mean, do you believe that that's more of the same, or do you think that it comes on from exhaustion? Um, what do you feel about sundowning? Well, sundowning is very real, and it usually starts out earlier in the day when we don't always look at it like this, but the sun is constantly changing, and with changing comes shadows. And with shadows comes misperceptions. And since people are going back further in time, they become very insecure around those times. They become very anxious. Um, oftentimes, a lot of my clients... When the lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Sundowning really goes into effect. It's because, you know, they were waiting. Let's say if it was a wife, she was waiting for the children to come home. Um, or the husband was coming home. Maybe it wasn't the world's greatest situation. Maybe they were living in an abusive situation. And when dad came home or whatever, all bets were off. So what happens is as the time changes, the person starts becoming more and more afraid. Once again, we go back into this fear-based moment because that's really what sundowning is. It's an anxiety that gets out of control. And the problem with sundowning is, is once the person is starting to go into that mold, it's very difficult to try to calm them down. So you really need to catch them before they get into it. So it is a question, Donnie. Yes, there is sundowning, and it's very real. But when it starts at 7 o'clock at night, that's not sundowning unless you happen to live, you know, in, I'd say, sunny South Florida, but the sun starts going down there around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, too. And, and I got a response back that, yes, indeed, he was better with strangers than brothers and sisters. Um, and, and I want to get back to that point. I want to take a few minutes break, and we'll be back with Caregiving SOS. Please um, get your questions into the chat room. Very important topic today. And we will be back in a few minutes.
Welcome back to Caregiving SOS and my friend Natalie Rubenstein and she wrote a book, I didn't mention this earlier, not a very good host today, Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias, The Caregiver's Complete Survival Guide. This is an award-winning book. It's very comprehensive and I recommend that everyone Everyone, look this up and um, pick up this book because it has some really, really good, powerful, Natalie doesn't mince words, and that's one of the things that I absolutely love about her. She tells it like it is. Um, So please pick up a copy of this book, and it's available where, Natalie? Um, It's available on Amazon, and it's available through my website, and it's available through e-books. Um, so we will talk more about that at the close of the show. I want you to remind the listeners. Um, one more thing that came from that question was um, he would always say that he feels like a prisoner, and that would lead to the verbal abuse. Um, again, probably pretty difficult to, uh, without complete counseling, to to know that. But I know one of the things that we've talked about is that some of one of the triggers, and we need to talk specifically about triggers, one of the triggers for aggressive behavior in Alzheimer's dementia patients can be the behavior from their past. Do you want to cover that? Okay. Um, basically, like we, we talked a little bit earlier, we all have a form of communication. And for many people, listen, we're independent. And we, we, you know, when we were kids, our parents were always telling us what to do. And, you know, our brothers and sisters were pushing us around. There was always a pecking order of authority. Um, or our bosses were telling us what to do or whatever. We get to a certain point in life and we start making our own decisions. And we feel what's best for us, whether it truly is best for us or not. But that's what we want to do. And as adults, we have that right to do it. As the dementia progresses and they are going back in time, we start treating individuals like children. And we don't ask them anymore, would you like this or where do you want to go? We, we basically tell them what they're doing. We tell them when they're eating. We tell them when they're showering. We tell them what to wear. We tell them when to get up. We tell them when their doctor's appointments are. And what happens is over a period of time, people start becoming very, very frustrated. It's a, we are controlling. And there's no doubt about it, but we're controlling because, A, they're having difficulty making decisions, and, B, it's in their best interest. But because the filters are off, they're not realizing it's in their best interest. And maybe it's the way that we're approaching it. And I always like to say, give people two options, only one of them is good. But you can live with both of them. So it's like, do you want the chicken or do you want the peanut butter and jelly sandwich? It doesn't really make a difference. But you give somebody a choice in things. Do you want to take a shower before breakfast? Do you want to take a shower after breakfast? You know, if you can afford to give the person a shower after breakfast, and it's not going to take up too much more time, then give people a choice. And oftentimes people with dementia aren't offered choices or they're not really good viable choices. And we start, you know, I I hate to say it, I did it too before I realized that there was a better way. I started, you know, ordering my mother around. Well, you don't order around a woman who was an executive secretary and raised three children. (laughs) It, it, It doesn't work very well. Um, but also, my mother was a very insecure person to begin with. So what's happening is, you know, we see people as they are today. We don't know what they were like when they were younger. We don't know the trials and tribulations that took them where they needed to be. And so what happens is when those filters come off, many of them revert back to behaviors that were once very natural and comfortable for them when they were growing up. Because everything's learned behavior. So, you know, they might have been bullied around when they were younger. And we don't know that. And all of a sudden, we start telling them what to do all over again. Well, in their mind, it's a bullying trigger. Although this time, they're much bigger and much stronger than they were when they were, you know, in their younger selves. And they don't realize that, you know, words are very powerful and that physically they're much more powerful. So that's where the problems begin. And I'm sure, too, that uh, feeling like a prisoner, obviously wandering is a uh, consideration. And in some ways, um, you know, maybe he's a little claustrophobic. I mean, if if he says he feels like a prisoner, what can this family do? 
Well, it depends upon where. I don't know if he's in an assisted living facility or not or whether he's at home. If he's at home, what I usually tell families are um, to give the person a safe place to roam around, which means, you know, maybe um, fencing in the backyard, making it nice out there, putting in a, a, a bench, putting in a bird bath. Um, counting the koi fish or, you know, little things that we can do, stringing up, uh, even stringing up small kites and trees for color. There's so many things that we can do to give people freedom. Um, I just, before your call, I just got off the phone with a client who was complaining to me that every time his wife gets up to go to the kitchen, he has to race after her. And my comment was, what for? And he goes, well, you know, she leaves the hose in the sink out and then the water gets all over the kitchen. So I'm like, well, why don't we just disconnect the hose to the sink? Uh, why don't we make the kitchen dementia-friendly? Um, it, it, it leads me back to when my children were younger. Um, there was two schools of thought. Kids either learned how to deal with the environment the way it was, which meant parents were always jumping up making sure the kids didn't break the crystal, or you take away the crystal, which is what I did for three to five years, and my house was kind of barren, but it was very child-friendly. So when my child walked into a room, I didn't have to trail after him and figure out what the heck he was doing. So I say try to make the house as environmentally friendly as you can. Remove the things that could be broken or that could be injurious. Give people a opportunity to stroll in the backyard. Maybe go out for walks for that, with that person. Um, remember, a person with dementia now is on our schedule. They're not on their own schedule anymore. So maybe he feels like a prisoner because he can't do the things he wants to do. So sit down and ask him, what would you like to do? Let's do it. Dad, would you like to go for a walk? Dad, would you like to do this? Dad, come on, I'm going for a walk. Let's go together. I feel safer when you're with me. Make them feel viable again. And and I know um, in a lot of cases that that is, and we speak about this in, um, in connecting through compassion and understanding with compassion, both of my books on uh, caregiving for a brain illness patient, um, it, it gets right down to a need. There's a need there that isn't being met. And it can be as simple as trying to figure out what that need is because the, the patient can't communicate it anymore. And that's where the frustration leads to because just like the tomato juice and the water incident, um, this individual was becoming very frustrated and the spouse was becoming very frustrated and I was watching it escalate and it only took three minutes for this to escalate. But what happens is we have to realize something as caregivers, um, oftentimes we're stretched to the max mm-hmm. and we really, we're, we're very low on time sometimes. I mean, you know, for some caregivers, you hear these wonderful stories about how their spouse is very easy. For many of us as caregivers, um, our spouses aren't easy. And we're, there's things we need to do. And if they don't go to the day center that day, that means that we can't go to our appointments or we can't get the bills done or, you know, we can't make the phone calls that we need to make. And we start getting anxious. And our anxiety actually, believe it or not, is contagious. What happens is people with dementia, because they pick up on our body language, um, clients say to me, they still say to me all the time, you know, he gets up every day of the week perfectly, except for the days that I need to get up. And I'm like, well, what are you doing differently? And then that's when they say, well, you know, they start, come on, come on, we've got to go, we've got to go, we've got to go. They start racing the person. And what happens is nobody likes to be raced because to them, you know, racing means something bad is going to happen because every time you've raced them, You've gotten them up to get them to go to a doctor's office where they sat around for hours, bored to, you know, bored to tears, um, or they've had some sort of a medical procedure, or you've taken them someplace where they just definitely weren't happy. Now, they don't like going back to what I said earlier. They don't remember the exact event, but they remember the feeling of the event. So if every time as a caregiver you get anxious, they're going to pick up on that anxiety and it's not going to be a good thing. Right. Very true. Now, we also talked about, when we're talking about some of the causes of aggressiveness, uh, the fact that some patient medications can cause aggressiveness as well. Correct. Medications can cause um, aggressiveness. The first thing family members, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard for me to just say this. Um, I can say this to you as a friend, but on national radio. Um, what happens is just because a person has been on medication for years does not mean that down the road that medication can either be ineffective 
or it can actually be causing a complication. And one of the first things I hear is when we talk about medication management is, oh, it can't possibly be that med because they've been on that for years. Well, that's how allergies are formed. It's constant exposure to an allergen. And think about it. Medication is an allergen. It's something that's foreign to our bodies. And as we get older, our bodies break down more. Our bodies can't, um, you know, they don't process the medication the same way they did maybe five or ten years ago. And then we add a new medication into the mix. And the two medications together can be causing the aggressive behavior because medications work differently in everybody. So what calms one person down can actually cause an aggressive behavior in another. And think about it also. When you're not feeling well, I don't know about you, but when I'm cranky, you know, nobody in their right mind is going to come near me. And I I can tell people don't come near me. And when you're feeling sick and you're lousy, well, you know, imagine you're having a communication problem and you can't explain that. That would be number one. Right. Um, Two, another reason for... um, aggressiveness can be a urinary tract infection or some other medical condition that is causing them not to be themselves. But because they have a difficult time explaining exactly what's going on, um, they might not even be able to tell you where they're hurt. I had one client who became highly aggressive, um, and it happened as it turned out, he had fallen out of bed, but because he got him back into bed, the wife had assumed he was okay. Actually, he had cracked two ribs. Oh, my goodness. And he was miserable. Um, So I, you know, I said to the wife, let's get him in. Let's get an x-ray. She didn't know he had cracked two ribs because he seemed to be fucked. Turned out that's where the pain, and anybody who's ever had cracked ribs will tell you it is probably one of the most painful conditions you can have. So there's a lot of reasons why people become aggressive. And what happens typically is it could be the medication. It could be an illness that's causing it. Um, but the third thing could also be us as caregivers. Um, we are too controlling. We're, we're constantly telling people what to do, where to go. And even right. though it's in their best interest, um, actually a person with dementia isn't going to understand that. So we need to find another way of conveying that or we need to find another way of distracting them or validating that they would love to go out right now and, you know, watch the cars go by, um, but it's not a very safe situation right now. Why don't we do this instead? Or you can right. even walk the person. There's so many things that we can do, but if caregivers listen, 10 o'clock at night, who wants to go stand outside in the front lawn? <laughs> exactly. You know, let's face it, we want to go, you know, we want to go to sleep. Is really what it comes down to. So we start getting really annoyed. Everything escalates, and that's when things get out of control. But however, there are people who naturally are mean and who are naturally aggressive. They've always been aggressive. They've just hidden it very, very well. Now, that's their story of how to plan for that because if you know that person had excessive aggressive tendencies in the past, then you need to prepare yourself for them. Um, we have a question. Are there medications that can treat the aggressive behavior exhibited by an Alzheimer's patient? All right, that's hit and miss. Yes, there are medications that can calm down a person, but you also have to realize something. When you calm down one behavior, you calm down a lot of behaviors also. So if you've gotten dad or let's say mom on some sort of a medication to reduce the aggressiveness, realize there are going to be a lot more docile in other areas. So you get, you get a total docileness across the board. It's not just the aggressive behaviors. You're going to have somebody who's sleeping more. You're going to have somebody who's not going to be engaged in activities as much. You're also going to have whatever calms you down physically is also going to calm you down through your bladder and bowels and kidneys, and that's sometimes where premature incontinence comes in. So my first comment to the caregivers is, what can we do to address the aggressiveness, to keep a journal, to find out what triggers it? Because those are the important things that we have to look for. And I know when you and I talked before, uh, I asked you point blank because obviously you want the patient to be safe as well. And I asked you um, if the patients ever, when they became aggressive, hurt themselves. Um, I have, I have yet, I have never in all of my years of working with clients, um, 
and it's been over 10,000 clients and counting. I have never once had an individual who actually injured themselves. Typically what happens is they injure the person who's caring for them. And I know that, um, you know, that's just, I've got some uh, final notes here on some specifics as far as, um, first of all, listening to the patient and knowing your patient and their history. You and I talked about that a little bit, that, you know, if you can get them early enough, even when they're first diagnosed, sit down with the patient and talk to them about their history. I was surprised when I read in your book, you were talking about bathing, um, bathing battles, and you talked about um, knowing if the patient had been in a concentration camp. And it's something that I never would have thought of, but obviously no wonder they're afraid of showers because they're reliving some unple- unpleasant times. Well, and, and once again, this goes back to the individual, the, the first um, caller that was talking about feeling like a prisoner. Um, if you think about it, because even with bathing, um, people have a preference. Some people like to be bathed first thing in the morning. Some people like to be bathed at night. Other people like hours. Um, you know, the room has to be a certain temperature. The water needs to be a certain temperature. Um, when we set a bath out, we set it out based on what our preferences are, not what the person with memory loss's preferences are. And so that starts a battle. It starts a huge battle. And, and these are the battles that, that really never have to be if we just take into consideration what that person's schedule was like before. If you have somebody and they were a postman and they were walking around and walking with what they always did and now you've got them confined inside a home, yeah, they're going to start getting aggressive because they've got a lot of energy that's pent up. Um, it's understanding the behavior, trying to figure out where the behavior is coming from. But mostly when you're a caregiver, um, when you do see one of these outbursts, it's very, very scary. Um, typically, it's more men who cause the outbursts than women. However, women do it also. And, you know, they're smaller and, you know, they're more frail looking and you think, oh, my God, she can't do very much anything. Trust me, when a person with memory loss wants to do something, they'll find a way of doing it. They summon up energy that you and I cannot possibly believe. Um, no different than the mother who picks up the flag and off the car. I mean, off the child. It's just, it, you, you've got to really see it in action. And my mother, who was 95 pounds, trying to get her into taking a bath, it was, we had two aides and myself, and we could not get her through the bathroom door. I mean, she, if you could just imagine a cat with this new, it was taking a bath, and its arms and legs got spread eagle across that door jam, mm-hmm. you couldn't pry her fingers off. We're talking, like, you know, a woman, 90 pounds, 95 pounds. So you can only imagine what a six foot one, two hundred and twenty five pound male is capable of doing. Right. So it's about you know watching for signs, watching for triggers, keeping yourself safe. Um, one of you know one of the things is cars, and we didn't even discuss that today about driving in the car because a person with dementia, when they want out, they're going to get out, and they don't care if you're stopped at a red light or if you're driving down the highway. And you're just slowing down because it's stop and go bumper to bumper traffic. They don't care. They will exit the car. Wow. So, you know, caregivers need to know that the safest seat is the back seat with the seat belt on in the middle and you put the childproof locks on the doors. That's number wow. one. Um, I explained to you one of my clients uh, that had been driving and her husband from the back seat because he already done it from the front seat. That's why we moved him into the back seat. Still reached over and grabbed her while she was driving because he didn't want to go to where they were going. He didn't even know where they were going. He just decided he didn't want to be in the car anymore. He was tired of it. So in that case, on her car keychain now, um, she has pepper spray. The thing is, if you cannot pull over while you're driving, you know, obviously someone coming at you while you're driving, both, both of your lives are in jeopardy at that point. So I have another client whose husband sometimes becomes aggressive um, in certain rooms, like one of the rooms of the house is the kitchen. We can't figure out what triggers. We try to keep him out of the kitchen. Well, I suggested to her that she gets one of those marine air horns. So, you know, it's something that's very um, non-intrusive. 
So when he starts getting a little anxious, she goes, honey, no, honey, no, honey, no. And then she just does that air horn thing. She doesn't do it into his ear, into his face. She just presses it behind her. He gets startled, diverts the whole thing. He's like, come on, let's get out of the kitchen. And then he leaves the kitchen. It's about diffusing situations, but it's also being prepared. And it's also knowing that you sometimes need to have 911 on your phone pre-dialed in in certain situations. And if you see a situation and it looks like it could possibly escalate, your best bet really is to get out of the room. You can't well, argue with a person who has memory loss. Natalie, given uh, your website again and the name of the book, please. Okay. It's um, alzheimercareconsultants.com. And the name of the book is Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias, The Caregiver's Complete Survival Guide. And everybody, thank you so much for being here today. And I hope that I want to thank our very special guest, Natalie Rubenstein, who I hope will be on with us again. Uh, Please have a wonderful and safe holiday season and Thanksgiving. Of course, I'll be back on Friday for Ladies Who Inspire. And thank you so much for tuning in. I got to find strength in me.